societies that we live in now. So if you do have your Bibles with you, 35 through to 45. And it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they asked, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, we just pray for Andy as he comes and speaks to us this morning about leadership and the way that your son radically changed the way that we now can view leadership. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. It's wonderful to see everyone. And uh, there's, um, I want to start really by, there's a, there's a book that was written by uh, a guy called Jim Collins. Some of you may have come across it. It was a highly successful business book um, called From Good to Great. And basically what they did is they researched, uh, I think, 1,400 good companies in the world. And they analyzed them over their uh, period of 40 years of, of how successful they had been. And out of those 1,400, they found 11 that they considered to be great companies. So companies that absolutely flew through the roof at some point um, in, their, in their life. And then what they wanted to do is to say, well, how did they become from good? Did they become great? And what they discovered, um, that the biggest difference between these companies, these 11, was to do with their leadership. And uh, great companies, he says, were led by what he called level five leaders. Okay, that was his kind of top bracket of leaders. Um, and although his reference point wasn't the Bible at all, when he describes what these servant leaders are like, his description is very similar to uh, the servant leadership model that Jesus uh, calls people to be. And so he describes them as people being able to show both modesty and willingness, humility and a fearlessness. And it's that modesty and that humility, it's, it's a confidence that they had, but not an arrogance. Serving their community, serving their colleagues in all of that. And as historians have looked back through everything, they've discovered that humility did not used to be a virtue. Okay? And it's only when Jesus comes on the scene that they can trace back when humility began to become a virtue in society. So the cultural context of Jesus' day uh, when it came to leadership was, was quite different. And so he says, as we've read, he says, you know, he says, that the rulers of the Gentiles 
lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Uh, Plato um, had said this. He'd said that, how can anyone be content if they are a slave? If you're a slave, how can you possibly be content? And yet Jesus starts to speak and starts to teach and starts to live a different way that says greatness is servanthood. And there was nobody talking about this. There was nobody taking this idea of humility as an attractive idea. The power of it has its roots entirely in Jesus. So the leaders of their day were generally very uh, military-type leaders. You can imagine uh, with the Romans, for example, you know, they had this uh, great um, swathe of pretty well most of Europe um, that they kind of controlled, most of the known world of the day. And they had this thing called the Pax Romana, which was the peace of Rome. And their way of keeping peace was basically to, um, to quash anything that, that rose up. Anything that argued against them, they would send in the military and they would just quash it hard and fast um, in all of that. Very different to what the Christian faith is about. Very different to what Jesus was about. And so, as I say, humility was not a virtue for the ancients. In fact, people would avoid being grateful to other people. You could be indebted to me, but if I was indebted to you, then that would diminish me somewhat, you know, because I don't want to be in your, you know, in your debt. I don't want to owe to you in all of that. And so the types of leaders um, they had, so we've, we've been that, so that's the, that's the verse, not so with you. They revered the philosophers of their day. I mean, you know, you read all about the great philosophers and you can get the, you know, the stone busts of them on, on, on all the rest places if you want one. Um, there was the military leaders um, who were, you know, that was the greatest leaders of the day. The great emperors um, were all military people, people who were able to conquer. You know, that was really at the heart of what leadership was uh, of that day. And also the wealthy, you know, where you, were, where you had connections, the family connections and the power because you had wealth. These were the things that they valued. You know, the Greek gods um, were all people who were warriors. They were all people with great military prowess, reflecting what the Greeks considered to be valuable, which was that military success. Um, and their gods were not interested in how you lived as long as you honored them. You know, as long as you gave honor to them, they didn't really care what you did with your life. And um, that bit was irrelevant. So the model of it all was crush your enemies and roll on. And Jesus says, no. He says, love your enemies. Okay, I want you to treat people this way, completely differently. So humility in the day was not a vice. Sorry, it was a vice. It was not a virtue. It was not something that you would want um, as part of you because you had to look important. You had to feel important. That was the key bit of it all. And then into all of this, Jesus steps in because he wants to shift the world's thinking on it. And he's born into the, the greatest empire that there has ever been, you know, the Roman Empire had even eclipsed the great Greek Empire with Alexander the Great and all of that. And Jesus comes into it with a very different tradition. He's not Roman, he's not, he's not um, Greek, but he's had a Hebrew background. And he started to read the Old Testament and he's, he's come across prophets like Amos who's taught a different kind of God. He's started to taught that, that God actually likes the poor, you know, and he likes and loves the humble. But even Amos understood humility in the sense of it being something that was done to you. So you were humbled, if you like. So it was, it was uh, something that happened to you, um, and God obviously had a heart for that. Um, so the trampled, if you like, the trampled of life, the downtrodden of life. And what Jesus does is he comes and he brings a completely different dimension to it. And he says this, he says, actually, humility 
is now the decision that you make yourself to lower yourself for the sake of another. So it's not something that's done to you, but it's actually something that you choose to do. You're not humbled by force, but you make yourself, he says. If you want to be first, you need to be the servant of all. And the linchpin verse in Mark's gospel, which is sometimes known as the the gospel of the servant king, is this passage in chapter 10, where he says this, he says, even I came not to serve, sorry, not to be served, but to serve. Okay, right at the heart of it. Some of you will be familiar with Philippians chapter 2, which is an amazing passage of downward mobility. You know, from God comes down to earth as a man who becomes a servant, who even gives up his life unto death. It's down, 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 down. And it says here, it says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. There are some versions of the Bible that, that translate it as although in the very nature of God. So it's although he was God, he did this. But that is not a good translation. The, the good translation is, is precisely this. It's who being in the very nature of God. Okay? It is precisely because he was in the form of God that he made himself nothing and took the form of a servant. He was not disguising himself. You know, I'm going to come in a humble way. Okay? But he was showing us what God is like. He was not disguising what God was. So the Greek gods, for example, would come down to earth in disguise. If you've ever heard the, the Greek mythology stuff, you know, Zeus and Hermes come down in disguise and effectively trick people. And um, that is how they came. But when Jesus comes as a little baby, when he grows up as a, as a carpenter or as a builder, um, when he gave his life on the cross, he isn't disguising who God is. He's revealing who God is, who being in very nature God. So humility wasn't his disguise. This is a revelation that he wants to bring. So we find ourselves at this moment in history with the cross right at the center. You know, the crucifixion of Jesus. And all of his physical power is spent and given up. He's at the lowest point that any person could get to. But he chose to go there. He wasn't humbled in that sense. He wasn't crushed in that sense. But he willingly gave himself uh, for you and I. And so suddenly the world has got a choice. Does this mean that Jesus wasn't as great as we thought? Or does it mean that we've got to change what our understanding of greatness really is? And so the cross becomes a symbol of this changing point in history. The cross changes everything. And to be truly great, is now to lower yourself for the sake of another. And humility is not denying your own status. God, God, Jesus had great status. Jesus had great standing. He knew who he was, but he, he moved it. He orientated it towards um, the sake of others, for the blessing of others, for the good of others. And as I say, historians can date it from the text they found to the first century, where people start to write about humility as a virtue, as actually something that you might want to add to your life rather than something to be ashamed of in all of that. And so we have this incident with James and John uh, that Sarah read to us, and they're wrestling with how, how this power and influence uh, can be exercised, but they're still stuck in their understanding of the day on what leadership kind of looked like. So they approach Jesus on the sly, these two. They come up to him, and they, they put in a bid for that place of privilege in Jesus' future kingdom. Because Jesus had promised the 12 disciples 
um, in uh, Matthew 19, that they would sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Peter and James have decided that they're going to kind of influence the seating arrangements in the throne room when they get there. So they ask Jesus, let one of us sit at your right and the other sit at your left in your glory. And of course, word spreads pretty quickly to the others, probably through Peter, because they were a threesome and he's just been out, outdone here. And um, they are really upset, verse 41. They are livid with these two. But they're not upset because, oh, they've misunderstood Jesus' teaching. Okay? It's not that kind of, they've really got it wrong here. They're upset because they beat them to the big ask. Okay? They wanted to get there, and they're gutted that they've been beaten to it. So Jesus sees this opportunity to teach them all about the world's understanding of this and his understanding of this. Because he sees in them the same desire for power that he saw in the Roman and the Jewish rulers and authorities. They lord it over they exercise authority over them because leadership was always seen as a, a place of dominance in all of that. And they were ambitious. They were striving for greatness. There is nothing wrong with that, but their motivation is completely out of kilter because these two guys were seeking honor. Okay? They were looking to build their sense of, of worth and value by being close to the center of power. So, you know, if they can get near the center, it's a bit like, you know, like a sun lamp, basking in a sun lamp. You know, you look good in, in, in its glow. You know, the glow kind of comes onto you as well. And it, it hides all the, the rubbish in us. So we don't have to be quite as good because we're relying on someone else's kind of glory, if you like. And so they want to be as close to that sun lamp as possible. Um, and they think they've arrived. If they can be in those chairs, then we've arrived. We're at the top. And it becomes like a drug to them, that sense of power. And I think every profession has got its hierarchy. You might be aware of it. And, you know, somebody said recently, if you want to know about the pecking order in the health service, ask a nurse. You know, there's, um, there's, a, there's a kind of the different colors what everyone wears in a hospital and who does what. I remember at the university, I used to work in research at the university. And at coffee, we have a coffee break. And I didn't realize this at first. This is absolutely true. And where everybody sat in a coffee break, they sat in order from the professors... Okay, down to the lecturers, down to the postdocs, down to the, the, the kind of research students, down to the, um, uh, the technicians and the lab assistants and the stores guy and the cleaner. And of course I go in, I have no idea, I just sat anywhere, completely messed up the whole thing and was determined to do so for the rest of my time there because I just thought, it's just not on. <laughs> but that was the way it seemed to work. And there's this gravitational pull of status that surrounds us, okay, and it's, it's actually quite subtle, um, and it probably has a hold on every single one of us um, in some way. The second thing they're looking for is power. You know, they're looking for this comparative position over the rest of the, the, the 12, um, and, and that comes out of pride. You know, pride is, can be defined as power that's used to enhance our ego, um, and it can be, it can be our looks, that we use, it can be our intelligence that we use, it can be um, our wealth or possessions that we use, um, it can be our strength, our physical strength that we use, and we can use all of those things as power to be comparative over someone else. And James and John wanted to be just better than the other ten. C.S. Lewis writes this, he says, at its essence, pride is competitive. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. 
They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. So back to Jim Collins and his book, Good to Great. He analyzes the level four leaders of the good companies and the level five leaders of the, what he calls the great companies. And the level four leaders were far more concerned about their personal greatness, a bit like James and John here. Now, the focus of the level four leader is not the long-term success of the organization, but it is on them being acknowledged now as being the reason why this is a good company. Okay? They, want the, they want the attention now. This is great because I'm here. You know, and actually, if, if I leave and it all falls apart, what a fantastic testimony to about how important I was to the company. Whereas the level five leaders don't think like that. They're thinking much bigger. They're thinking, this is not about me. This is about the organization. How can I make the organization great um, in all of that? In fact, Collins researched um, an article. There's an article written by one of the level four leaders. He blogged um, an article on change. And he says the word I 40 times and the word we 16 times because it was far more about him and what he had done and all of that. And so Jesus says leadership is very, very different. My approach is completely different. It isn't about seeking honor. It isn't about getting value from power. Not so with you, he says. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Servant leaders still need to lead. Okay? And we're to lead with diligence, and we're to lead with courage, um, but in a way that is not concerned with receiving praise. Because it's not about us, it's about others in how we do that. Someone, or the saying goes, you can accomplish anything in life as long as you don't mind who gets the credit. And that's kind of at the heart of this. And Collins, these level five leaders, are exactly that. They're people who are focused not on their own personal success, but on the success of the organization, or the business, or of everyone else in all of that. They are ferociously determined to do whatever it takes to make the organization great, but for them it is not about them. It is about something that is far bigger. And it's amazing that this research has come out, and yet the roots of it are fundamentally in what Jesus is teaching and modeling here. Gilbert Belzikian puts it like this. He says, in one fell swoop, Jesus unequivocally rejected the hierarchical model and replaced it with an alternative contrast model of downward mobility, patterned on his own itinerary of humiliation from the highest glory to the lowest condition as crucified Savior. And then the night before his crucifixion, um, you may be aware of that passage in John 13, you know, and there's the Last Supper, you know, and they've all come to eat, and, you know, the custom of the day was to wash people's feet because it's dusty, it's sweaty, the smell. Yeah, the meal would be better if people had washed their feet. And, and so Jesus realizes they haven't done this, so he gets up, and he gets a towel and he washes his disciples' feet. And he demonstrates that humility and leadership because they've completely forgotten. And he says to them, he says, if I do this for you, then you must humble yourself in your leadership as well. 
So just that deliberate lowering of yourself um, for the sake um, of another. Um, I just want to finish with a a really powerful story, um, because at the heart of all of this is the difference between power and authority. And Jesus always spoke as one who had authority. You know, power-wise, actually, he had no power in the day, people-wise, humanly speaking. But he spoke with authority. And Tony Campolo demonstrates the difference between this with a a story of uh, Mother Teresa. And he tells of um, a state hospital in the U.S. um, where there are people who are emotionally and psychologically disturbed. It's a massive hospital, lots of mental health issues that it's dealing with. And the directors of this hospital decide that they want to start some halfway houses. Some halfway houses to help some of their their patients begin to move and transition back into society. And places where they can go and begin to start some some jobs perhaps and then perhaps move on to finding their own homes, their own flats and their own residences. But as you might imagine, there's a lot of locals that are not too happy about this because there's, there's about five of these houses that they want to set up. And so the council meeting is called. The city council call a massive meeting and there's, there's over 500 people who come who are shouting and yelling and they've got placards and they are just not, not happy at all and they're opposing these halfway houses. You know, they said, you know, we don't want these crazies living in our neighborhood, as they put it. And so the city council can't convince this rabble <laughs> at, the, at the council meeting and so they vote unanimously um, against the proposal. Not a lot of discussion, but that's their decision. No sooner have they made that decision than the back doors of the auditorium are opened and in comes Mother Teresa. And she's been in town for a ceremony um, dedicating a Sisters of Charity program and she'd heard about this meeting. And so she comes down the centre aisle and everyone is, is astonished at this. And she comes down to the front and she got down on her knees in front of the city council and she raises her arms. And she says, in the name of Jesus, make room for these children of God. When you reject them, you reject Jesus. When you affirm them, you embrace Jesus. And then on her knees and with her arms up, five times she says, please, 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 in the name of God, make room for these people. Make room for them in your neighborhoods. What do you do if you're on the city council? Okay, the reporters have followed her in. The city councillor sitting there, and one of them, the chairman, stands up and he says, I propose we change the decision. And then another guy seconds it, and then the whole city council vote unanimously to reverse the decision that was made a few minutes earlier. And the papers reported the next day that the most remarkable thing is that of the 500-plus people that were packed into that meeting, not one of them uttered a word of opposition to the motion. Why? Because Mother Teresa was there. She spoke as someone having authority. Okay? Where did she get that authority? On the streets of Kolkata. Okay? As she loved, as she sacrificed for the poor and the oppressed, as she, in humility and with sacrificial love, earned her authority. And the council had power, because they were the councillors, but they had little authority. She had no power, little old woman, but she had all the authority because of her life. So when we speak with people 
And when we, you know, when we want to speak with authority, it only comes out of us being sacrificial, out of humility, rather than out of power, where we demand our rights. And so we see this thing grow in the early church. We see it in the missionaries who went across the world. You know, people at Hudson Taylor went to China and lived amongst the people there. They dressed as them, learned the languages, served them, learned the culture, all in humility. You know, Paul defines himself in the New Testament as a servant of Christ, you know, a slave, a bond servant uh, of Jesus. And in the world today, you know, we have got two types of politicians, those that serve themselves and those that serve others. And we know which ones we want. It's the cross of Jesus that changes everything. And even business leaders today are now discovering that is the case. 